Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello everyone and welcome back to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week we're recording the first in a two-part special on the continuing crisis in Ukraine, a country which now seems more vulnerable than at any point since Russian forces swept across the border back in February 2022. Military aid still waiting for approval in the US Congress, Russian forces close to capturing the key town of Avdivka, Zelensky firing his top general and Ukraine beginning the long and very protracted negotiation to enter the EU. So the question we're going to ask over two episodes is, what does the history of Ukraine's independence mean for the future of Ukraine, Europe and NATO? No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. In 1922, when the USSR was being established, the Bolsheviks started building the USSR and established the Soviet Ukraine, which had never existed before. I mean, there's an elephant in this room, which is called by name Russian Federation Delegation. Hundreds of thousands of pro-democracy Ukrainians in the streets today protested against the results of the presidential election, pitting their candidate, the West-leaning challenger Viktor Yushchenko, against the pro-Moscow Prime Minister, Viktor Yanukovych. Unarmed protesters gunned down in the streets by the riot police who were retreating from Kiev's Maidan Square. A fierce battle broke out today on the fringe of the former Soviet Union. Tonight, Secretary of State Rice is calling on Russia to end its assault on the Republic of Georgia, now a U.S. ally. Well, if somebody has the desire to send regular troops, that would certainly bring humanity to the brink of very serious global conflict. Right, so what we're going to do is spend the first episode, this episode, looking at the geopolitics of this crisis, concentrating on the period running up until Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014, which is really the start of the Russo-Ukrainian war. And and to try and talk about what this tells us about what's really at stake here and where things might be headed. In the next episode, next week, we'll dig into the history of the war itself and what that means for NATO's future, given Donald Trump's now open scepticism about defending Europe at all Russian attack. So I think that the key thing well, that Helen and I have been discussing is that we need to get to the 1990s and the collapse of the Soviet Union to understand what's really happening here. So formally, this takes place on Christmas Day in 1991 with the resignation of Mikhail Gorbachev. But actually, to understand the war in Ukraine itself, you have to get a, rewind a couple of years to 1990, really. And I think the key point that I want to get across to start with is just how extraordinary this moment in history is, this collapse of the Soviet Union. George Kennan, America's expert on the Soviet Union, he, ha- he has this quote where he, where he says, I find it hard to think of any event more strange and startling and at first glance more inexplicable than the sudden and total disintegration and disappearance from the international scene of that great power known successively as the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. And I think that does kind of capture how huge this is and the ramifications that are basically still with us today. So, Helen, 
Can you start us then in March 1990? Is that the, the right place to start? You know, this is four months after the fall of the Berlin Wall, when Lithuania becomes the first Soviet republic rather than a Warsaw Pact country to declare independence from the Soviet Union. Yeah, the the story of the dissolution of the Soviet Union really begins, I think, with the with the Baltic states, so mm. with Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia. The first one to make its move is Lithuania, which declares independence, as you said, Tom, in, in March. 1990. And the Soviet government responds to that announcement with an economic blockade that goes on for, went on for several months. Mm. And as events turn in the way in which they do in the Baltic republics, where we've basically got Soviet resistance to this attempt by the Baltics to become independent states, there's, should we call them nationalist stirrings in other Soviet republics, yeah. including obviously um, in Ukraine. I think we should bring out several things at this point. The first is that the Baltics are in some sense different than the other Soviet republics because the Baltics had a history of independence mm. during the interwar years. They'd lost their independence when the Soviet Union attacked as part of the Nazi-Soviet mm. pact in, in 1939. And I think that when politicians in Western capitals are thinking about how to respond mm -hmm. to this tumult now in the Soviet Union, they're drawing a, a quite clear line, or at least some of them are, mm. between the fate of the Baltic states and others. Yeah. And I think it's really important to see the ways in which, particularly given the way that this history is going to play out, that pretty much to a person mm. that the Western leaders, so that's George Bush Sr. Uh, in Washington, at least in 1990 itself, Margaret Thatcher, though she's going to be gone by the time the dissolution of the Soviet Union occurs, Helmut Kohl in Germany mm -hmm. and Francois Mitron, they're very, very nervous. Yeah. Yeah about this situation that some of them, I'd say put Thatcher and probably Bush in this camp, can think okay to the Baltics, yep. just about. Mm -hmm. But Helmut Kohl, the German chancellor, is very unkeen even on that. Mm -hmm. He says at one point, I think that the dissolution of the Soviet Union will be a catastrophe and that anyone pushing for such a result was an ass. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is how opposed that he was. And it's really... Events then in the in the summer of 1991 that really start to change this and mean that we're now in a situation in which by the end of the year, this extraordinary thing, as George Kennan's describing it, mm -hmm. has happened, which is a dissolution of the, the Soviet Union. And Ukraine is absolutely central to that. Yeah, Ukraine is the key state. I think that's the important thing that I've been learning as I've been reading into this. It's rather like, in my head, Scotland in the Union. You know, it's can the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union, Kennan's sort of saying that the two things are virtually the same, can that actually survive without Ukraine? Now, it can survive without the Baltics, but most uh, analysts are saying it cannot survive without Ukraine. That's the core of the Russian Empire. And I think that's actually why it's it's so important in the mindset today of Russian leaders, and it was at this moment in time. There's a uh, a Ukrainian historian called Serhi Ploky, who's written a brilliant book called the uh, the Russo-Ukrainian War. He's a Harvard economist, born in Russia, to Ukrainian parents, and he writes that it's it's really Ukraine's declaration of independence which spells the end of the Soviet Union. Up until that point, it wasn't guaranteed, and this is in late 1991, and it's from that moment following the attempted coup on Gorbachev in August of 1991, when, when I mean, he's, he's effectively losing authority in, in Moscow to Yeltsin, who's the sort of uh, leader of the Russian parliament and is the voice really of Russian nationalism. And I think that's something that we need to, we, we need to bring out here, that the rise of Russian nationalism. But when Ukraine votes to secede, um, Nobody can quite believe it. Yeltsin can't quite believe it. He, and he is saying, I can't believe that this is happening. The Crimea is Russian, he says to one of his aides. And all of those to the, to the east of the Dnieper River, they face to Russia. Because what had happened actually is Gorbachev had offered a reformed USSR 
Um, but the Ukrainian leader, Kravchuk, refuses. Yeltsin then proposes to dissolve the USSR. And listening in, I thought this was an extraordinary little moment. The Belarusian KGB sort of panicking, think, thinking, what do we do here? And they inform their bosses in Moscow what's going on. But Gorbachev doesn't have any authority anymore. It's all gone to Yeltsin. And this is the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah, I think that in order to see just how that we get to that point in December we need to look at the sequence of events mm. over the summer quite carefully because mm -hmm. you can also see the way in which the um, the Western governments, particularly Washington, particularly George Bush in, in Washington, is, is involved in this. So it's pretty clear that the Baltic republics are gone yeah. by this point. And Gorbachev's project, in a way, or project will be going too far given it is, it, it's, it's not going to succeed, I think, or attempted project is to try to hold the rest of the Soviet um, Union together. And Absolutely. George Bush Sr. is really quite supportive of Gorbachev in that. And he tells Gorbachev, he goes to Moscow in July of 1991, and he tells Gorbachev that it would not be in America's interest for the Soviet Union to collapse. And pretty much the same day, he refuses to meet with some pro-independence leaders in Mm -hmm. Ukraine. He then goes down to the Ukrainian Soviet um, Parliament and gives this um, address. And he says, and I'm going to quote him directly, that the US would not support those who seek independence in order to replace a far off tyranny with a local despotism. They will not aid those who promote a suicidal nationalism based mm -hmm. on ethnic hatred. Now, this is pretty strong language. <laughs> Very strong, yeah. That, um, that Bush is... is um, there are people back in Washington in the Republican Party who are very unhappy with him mm -hmm. about this speech. That They see it as sort of siding with Soviet Gorbachev over yep. democratic, potentially democratic um, Ukraine. But... The point is that this is American official policy. And what changes is there's the 18 days after he's given this speech is there is this coup against Gorbachev. Gorbachev's ironically on vacation in Crimea <laughs> when this happens. The Ukrainian leadership don't implement the emergency measures that the, the coup, the military people want implemented. They don't resist it in the way in which Yeltsin does back on in Moscow. Yeltsin's got Russians out on the mm -hmm. on the street. And as we know, what happens after Gorbachev, the coup fails, really in significant part down to what Yeltsin does, is, is that Gorbachev is not able in any way to claim his authority back when he actually gets back to Moscow. And really, I would say mm -hmm. that Yeltsin then, as the Russian president, because that's what he is at this point, takes over the government of the Soviet Union. Yes. It's a Russian takeover of the Soviet Union in this late um, stage. And that's what precipitates the Supreme Soviet in Ukraine to declare Ukraine's independence on the basis of a parliamentary vote that then is going to be subject to a referendum. But it's pretty clear that if you go back to the speech, the day that Bush is speaking to the Ukrainian parliament, that there isn't really a majority. I mean, mm -hmm. there's probably a large minority for independence mm -hmm. um, at that point within the Soviet um, communist part of Ukraine, the 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 demands for independence are coming from elsewhere. But the fact that Yeltsin behaves in the way in which he does after the failed coup is what pushes Ukraine in the direction of independence. So in that sense, that this is a move that's thwarting the Russians in Moscow and it's thwarting Bush in Washington, who doesn't want this to happen. And it's not something, that's, it's not something that Cole or his German Chancellor or, or Mitterrand want to happen. They're, they're being overtaken by events here, Russian-driven events. Yeah, exactly. It's the rise of Russian nationalism that is, is the key thing here in, in destabilizing the Soviet, or ending the Soviet Union, I should, I should say. It's, it's Yeltsin. I mean, again, a moment in history here, but the year before the, the visit that you mentioned there of Bush to Moscow, Margaret Thatcher had gone to Moscow. And while she's giving a press conference with Gorbachev, Yeltsin's Russian parliament asserts that its law will now take precedent over Soviet law. So you can see the unwinding of the Soviet Union's authority here taking place bit by bit. And when Gorbachev resigns on Christmas Day in 1991, he says he has done so because he's tried to maintain what he calls the union state and the integrity of the country, but he hasn't been able to. 
and that's that's the moment he he accepts defeat at that point and then i think it's i think it's moments later or within hours certainly that the soviet flag goes down on the kremlin and the russian flag goes up uh, but it's 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 what that then means that's that's i think really interesting sort of geopolitically because it's what you've done is you've you've wound down an empire a russian empire and you've created a russian state a new russian state now what is that state going to be is that a western democratic nation state well it doesn't the borders don't work like that in the same way that they work for say france or for britain or for germany and obviously it's taken a century or so to actually fix those borders in a way that that function in in western europe uh, but they don't quite function for russia because there's russians outside of those borders and there's plenty of other nationalities within the russian state and so i think in the the sergey plokhi's book you know he talks about a a challenge for the russian elite from this point what are they trying to achieve from that moment are they trying to build a, a modern western nation state or are they still clinging to the idea of a russian empire a, a greater russia that has control over its uh, either entirely over its neighboring countries as a kind of colonial thing or over the russians within them as a nationalist thing and that is a i think a tension that that still plays out to this day in putin's speeches it's not quite clear exactly what which one he is going for is it to bring in the russians that are outside russia or is it to to bring back the soviet union in effect russia's empire i think the other thing we need to bring in is that this is a material disaster for russia yep too i mean both economies the russian and the ukrainian economy essentially collapse mm-hmm. uh, in the in the 1990s but from the point of view of um, Russia, I think there are two particular blows that come from the loss of Ukraine in a material sense. The first of them is that the whole um, pipeline network they have for selling oil and gas mm-hmm. to European countries runs through Ukraine. Yeah. So they're now got to deal with Ukraine as a transit state for their principal exports and a great deal of Russian-Ukrainian conflict in the period between independence and the outbreak of the all Russia's invasion, I should say, um, in February of 2022 is, is taken up with these energy issues. And the second is that Sevastopol, the Russian naval base on the Black Sea, is now in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that's complicated by the fact that right from the start, there is this internal politics within the new Ukraine about mm-hmm. Crimea. So there was actually a self-proclaimed Republic of Crimea. I think it's from some point in 91 through mm-hmm. to um, 1995. And at one point, I think it's in May 1992, that they actually claim um, independence. And this then yep. produces a pretty serious conflict between Yeltsin and the Russian parliament about what to do about this because Yeltsin moves from somebody who was pretty strongly opposed to Ukrainian independence to someone who, from the point of view of Russian nationalists, is mm-hmm. nowhere near engaged enough about the Crimea and the Sevastopol problem. And actually, I'd forgotten this until, and I remember it now in real time, but I'd forgotten it until I was um, reading about it again. There's this moment in 93 where Yeltsin's like ordering, you know, the army to shoot at the Russian parliament. Yes, <laughs> in, yes. In all these conflicts he's having. And one of the things that he's having conflict... Many people killed. At yeah, the, yeah. One of the things he's having a conflict with them about is the Crimea issue and the Sevastopol issue, because this is all unresolved. I mean, I think that this is the important thing to bring out yeah. as well. We've had the dissolution of the, the Soviet Union. In one sense, this looks not entirely peaceful mm-hmm. because there's the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. But in terms of the scale of the change, it's... By any historical standards, remarkably peaceful, and that's not trying to minimise what happened in those two republics. But it it doesn't bring these territorial questions in any way to an end. And that's where I think that the end of history narrative just completely misses that there's this fault line through 1990s Europe that runs through Ukraine and Crimea, like right from the right from the start. And from the point of view of Washington and the European capitals, we've now got to think about, well, what do we do when there's Ukraine state with nuclear weapons, when the Russian naval base in the Black Sea is now in Ukrainian um, 
territory, they have to get involved in it. They don't really want to get involved in it, I don't yeah. think. I mean, the, the 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 Bush administration sends humanitarian assistance to Ukraine in from nineteen from nineteen ninety two, but they're not making any big kind of commitment at that point, even though Ukraine is slipping into an even worse economic disaster than than Russia is at, at, oh, at that point. The figures are extraordinary, aren't they? Yeah. There's something like it's a ten percent loss of GDP a year, mm. you know, for, for three years. And there's one year I think it falls by more than twenty percent in a year. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely remarkable. I think what is happening in that scene that you painted of Yeltsin firing at the Russian parliament is that there is a rise of the old communist parties in both Kiev and Moscow. And there are fears that they will uh, take power and they will try and uh, rebuild the, uh, the Soviet Union with given the collapse of what is uh, the economies of both countries, it's entirely understandable why that may, might be taking place. There's a brilliant Charles Pohl note that he sends to Margaret Thatcher at this point, warning that the end of history is completely wrong and facile and that we're going to be dealing with the fall of the Soviet Union for a decade, I think he puts it, which is actually a massive <laughs> understatement of what happens. So, I, I mean, he points at nationalism, but I think it's not just nationalism. It's the centres of power. It's the spheres of influence question, because what places the Soviet Union is this thing called the Commonwealth of Independent States. And this is a, it's quite hard to, to say exactly what it is, but it is, an, it is effectively the states of the old Soviet Union uh, coming together in a Commonwealth, a cooperation. It's not quite the EU, but it's an attempt to build a sort of Eurasian federation. Now, Russia hopes to use this as its way of maintaining its influence in this region. Yeah, I think it's Yeltsin who says that in today's conditions, only the Commonwealth of Independent States can ensure the preservation of Russia's political, legal and economic space built up over centuries, but now almost entirely lost. And, and some of his advisors are saying, look, it's once we've rebuilt Russian strength, then we can start pursuing the union again. And I think actually you could see that, and we'll, we'll come to this later, is effectively Putin's strategy. He wants to use this Commonwealth of Independent States or its successors to try and rebuild Russian power. Effectively, it never gives up its pretensions to dominate. So you've both got uh, border questions, you've got nationality questions, your economic questions and then you've got sphere of influence questions and these are all still completely unresolved by the time we get to the um to the budapest summit which is this crucial moment in uh, 1994 the thing tom about the budapest memorandum is that actually at that moment the russian government does formally recognize ukraine's territorial borders mm -hmm. now this is yeltsin and putin has made clear on a number of occasions since then, and not just in recent years, that he doesn't see any reason why Russia under him should be bound yeah. by the the Budapest um, Memorandum. I think there's something really significant about it as well, though, other than what Yeltsin formally does there, we should bring out, is that this is when Ukraine agrees to give up its nuclear weapons mm. and join the non-proliferation regime and is given security assurances by the US and the UK as the signatories mm -hmm. to this agreement in, in doing so. Now, interestingly, the French president, Mitterrand, is still showing his reluctance on these issues because he refused to sign the Budapest Memorandum. And I think within Ukraine itself, there's some scepticism. The Ukrainian premier at the time says, quote, if tomorrow Russia goes into Crimea, no one will raise an eyebrow, which turns out obviously to be rather prophetic about where the, these things will go. And I think what we can see is, is that this is going to turn out to be quite a flimsy basis for Ukraine having any real security assurances. There's one thing I think we should come to in a moment about Crimea, but just if we stick on the question of what kind of external support Ukraine is getting for giving up nuclear weapons, I think the answer is very, very little. Hmm. Is There's no prospect that Ukraine is going to be one of those states that's allowed to join NATO as Poland, Hungary and the Czech Republic are later in the decade. Mm -hmm. There's no prospect that Ukraine's even going to have an associate membership with the European Union, let alone to join the European Union, like the Baltic states and Poland and some of the other Warsaw Pacts like Hungary, Czech Republic, etc. do in, in 2004. You can see that Ukrainian governments, which is still quite close to Russia at this point in the second half of the 1990s, would quite like to at least 
be included in discussions about those things. Mm-hmm. There's some movement to bring Ukraine into some of these partnerships mm-hmm. arrangements that that NATO has. Uh, I think even at a certain point a bit later that Ukraine gets involved in supporting some NATO operations. But there's a really clear distinction being drawn between states that can join something like Partnership for Peace, as it was called, mm-hmm. which at one point was sort of potentially open to Russia, yeah. and states that are going to be in NATO. And Ukraine's fate is to be outside NATO, and Ukraine's fate is to be outside the EU. Which leaves it in an incredibly vulnerable position. I think this is some of the things that I found interesting when I was looking at this part of, of Ukraine's history, is that when Russia when Russian democracy collapses under the failure of its economy, effectively, and Yeltsin becomes more and more authoritarian, Ukrainian democracy survives, partly because it's not really yet a nation state. It, it, it's so divided between East and West, between Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers, and it doesn't quite have the sense of a national story about what's happened, that that weirdly protects its democracy, or the embers of its democracy at least, because it's not no one person is able to assert complete control it's a oligarchic system it's poor it's divided and it's having to deal with the fact that it hasn't got anybody protecting its security interests it's it's particularly vulnerable uh, as as you've just set out it's not going to do it the united states isn't going to do it and so this is what kind of protects it that only changes much later on but effectively what's happening is we have in the West, decided that Ukraine is different to the other states. And in fact, what's also happening is that the Eastern European states have also decided that Ukraine is different. And they don't want to be lumbered in with Ukraine. They don't want that as a complicating factor in their own journey into the West. And so that was something that I was quite surprised with, that Poland and the Baltic states were quite anti any talk of Ukraine coming in towards NATO or the European Union? Well, I think things change with the polls at a certain point, and we'll, we'll, we'll come to that in the second half. We're mm. going to talk about what happened in 2004, 2005 with the Orange Revolution in mm-hmm. Ukraine that pushes Ukraine's domestic politics off in a different direction. But I think there's one thing we've missed that we should just get in here before we turn to the Orange Revolution, and that is this agreement between Ukraine and Russia in 1997, because this is the point where they reach an agreement. And I think it's important to stress that it's a time-limited agreement yep. about dividing up, essentially, the Soviet fleet mm-hmm. in the in the Black Sea and Russia having military rights in Crimea and a 20-year lease, as it then was, on using Sevastopol yep. um, as continuing to use Sevastopol, essentially, as its naval um, port. Now, you could look at this moment and say, look, this is a point where if you put the Budapest Memorandum with the 1997, I think it was called the Friendship Treaty, together, then you've got quite a lot of Ukraine-Russia issues being resolved. Mm -hmm. I think the transit is more complicated than that. But I think, and I don't think it's just retrospect to say this, that the thing that's really important to see is is that they could only reach an agreement about what was going to happen for 20 years and that not in the big long. scheme of yeah. things it's not very long and as we'll see when we get to come back after the break and talk about the orange revolution the orange revolution itself immediately puts the crimea question and the sevastopol question back into play and so when the us and the european countries and nato to some extent have to engage with ukraine in a much more direct way, this is on the table. And that, I think, shapes quite a lot of what's going to come in terms of the events up to 2014. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back, everybody. So in this half, we're going to start mainly with the Orange Revolution, as it's called, a key moment that happens in 2004. I just want to give everybody a quick overview of where we are at this point. So the, one of the key things is uh, Yeltsin has handed over power to Vladimir Putin at the very end of 1999. The It's actually New Year's Eve, isn't it? In 1999. Extraordinary uh, moment. Uh, but also power is changing uh, a, a, across the region, both in, in Ukraine and the former Soviet Union. So you've had 9-11 and you've had a push from Putin actually to try and have closer ties with the United States. He's allowed the United States to use military bases in Central Asia, in, in Kyrgyzstan, so that they can help with the war in Afghanistan. And he's trying to win concessions back for that. And the key one is for the US to recognize effectively Russia's sphere of influence, particularly in Ukraine. The US never goes that far, but it does offer uh, certain things in return, including membership of the WTO. Um, and you've also had the start of what are become called as kind of the color revolution. So you had in Georgia, the revolution of the roses, as it's called. So you're starting to get a sense of concern in Moscow about these revolutions and who's orchestrating them and what it means. And then in 2004, the key moment where you have a, a elections between a guy called Yanukovych, who is the outgoing president's appointed successor or preferred successor. He is more tilted towards Russia and maintaining ties with Moscow. And you have a guy called Yushchenko, who is more Western focused. You have these elections and it looks like Yanukovych, the Russian-facing one, effectively rigs the results. There are huge protests. And what you eventually have is a kind of negotiated compromise in which you have new elections that take place, which are then comfortably won by Yushchenko, the Western-facing candidate. Now, this is seen as a disaster in Russia. So they haven't persuaded the West to recognize its sphere of influence, and they're losing control. And one guy says that the Orange Revolution was our 9-11, in quotes. This is a Russian analyst called Greg Pavlovsky, who is very influential with the Kremlin. And so I think that gives you a sense of how the Kremlin, how Moscow is, is looking at what looks like a drift away of Ukraine into the West and how serious that they take this. There's so many things going on here, Tom, aren't there, that come out of what you've just said. I think if we look at it in terms of Ukraine itself, we can see a really sharp geographical division. So yeah. if, if you look at the electoral map of mm -hmm. the, the second of the, well, the, the, the election that took place in in December of 2004 that um, Viktor Yushchenko um, won, then all on the Western Ukraine and Northern Ukraine votes for Yushchenko yeah. uh, and Eastern and Southern Ukraine votes for Yanukovych. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a very direct relationship between the geography of that election and the direction of, of the war that was um, to come. I think as well is that right from the start, one of the reasons why the Russians or Putin, to be more precise, reacts in the way in which he does, is is that the new government that Viktor Yushchenko um, forms makes clear that it wants the Sevastopol question back on the table. Mm. It doesn't accept that Ukraine is bound by that 1997 um, right. agreement. And we'll see, I mean, in terms of the way that that plays out, it, it plays out um, later in the in, in, in the decade before the 2014 Crimea crisis, and we'll we'll come to it. But I, I think it's really important, more generally, to see that Yushchenko regards Ukraine joining both NATO and the European Union as absolute priorities. I think at one point he says something. It's like it's the alpha and omega mm -hmm. of, of of this government that we that we do that. And that's really difficult 
on both counts. Mm -hmm. If we look at it in 2004, then a bunch of both former Warsaw Pact states and the Baltics joined the European Union. And Poland in particular is from this point on going to be a really quite significant supporter of Ukraine. I'd say before then that the only EU state that's that supportive about Ukraine was Sweden. But Poland is going to be out of the uh, NATO at that point. Ally on um, for Ukraine, and 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 that's going to matter as the NATO question becomes um, more um, difficult. But I think if you look at it from the point of view of the the European Union, and perhaps from the point of view of the the German Chancellor, at least by two thousand and five, Angela Merkel, uh, in particular, this is about to become a bit nightmarish because they've just gone through enlarging the European Union to the east, taking on quite a lot of complications in doing so, in particular on the economic side, taking Poland Mm -hmm. into the European Union, given its size. So the idea of taking in Ukraine with all its conflicts and all its economic problems, which are on another scale to Poland's, this is not something that they can easily um, contemplate. And by this point, the German government under Merkel's predecessor Gerhard Schroeder, has reached an agreement with the Russians about building the first Nord Stream pipeline. And in part that they did so because the German, or that one part anyway, at least of the German political class and the German energy companies are sufficiently worried about where the future of Ukraine-Russian relations are going, that they don't want pipeline Mm. gas coming from Ukraine to Germany. They want to bypass Ukraine because they've come to the conclusion that Ukraine... It's just trouble. Yeah, uh, in, that is, in, I mean, that is foresighted. In, in, an, in an energy um, sense. So I think that what we can see is initially the pressure on what are you going to do about Ukraine falls on the, on the European Union. But then from 2007, things change again. That's the year when Putin gives his famous speech at the Munich Security mm. Conference, where he really articulates that... A, he regards Russia as back as a geopolitical power. And in some sense, the question of what the Russian state is in a territorial sense is unfinished Mm -hmm. business. Yeah, I think you could see, couldn't you, 2004, the Orange Revolution to 2014 and Russia's annexation of Crimea, that decade as a kind of push and pull between the West and Russia about what to do with this dilemma. Because... In one sense, the Orange Revolution forces upon Ukraine a dilemma, which is you either accommodate Russia and its concerns and you don't do anything which is going to uh, cause you a security problem or uh, you go to the West and you have to try and get NATO to protect your security because you ultimately cannot do it yourself. And and as soon as you go down that route... uh, then you uh then you you sort of you've made your decision uh and that's going to be uh that's going to be essentially the question for ukraine over the over the coming 10 years but it's also the question for the west in in return isn't it is what do you do then about a country that is seeking to to join your side of the table that is going to cause conflict with russia and that is again that is europe's question that it'll have to deal with i mean i think it's interesting as you were talking there helen that Poland joins NATO first before it then joins the EU. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? If you join, you, you've joined NATO and your security is guaranteed, and then you join the economic bloc. But it's a, it's a sort of dis- disaggregating the two that is that doesn't really make any sense. And this is where we are today as well, isn't it? That how can you have Ukraine inside the EU without its security being protected? by the West. I mean, I think that that really hard question, which has never since gone away and is so much part of the, the story um, of Ukraine's future from the point of view of, like, if, of 2005, revolves around that question. Mm-hmm. Because it isn't just the case of Poland and Hungary and Czech Republic, the ones who joined NATO first in 1999 and then joined the European Union in 2004. If you look at the Baltic states, mm. their accession to the European Union, it came the same year at the same time, effectively, as they were joining yeah. um, NATO. 
and there's no doubt that that question of what the relationship is between the EU accession for these states and NATO accession is fraught in other cases too. I mean, mm. if we go back to the 90s, in a way, Bill Clinton pushed NATO accession for those three states because he saw that the European Union was really dragging its feet. Mm-hmm. Not least because neither the well, particularly the French yeah. weren't very keen um, on the East European states coming into the uh, European Union. Now that I think then had another complication because it kind of meant NATO was kind of acting as a substitute in some kind of symbolic sense for not them not being able to um, join the European Union. It pushed NATO in the direction of, a, or at least an. an a framing of NATO's purposes around being an alliance for democracy, which of course it never was, mm-hmm. and still no. not is. But it it muddled the issue um, quite considerably when you apply that to um, Ukraine. And I think what you can see in terms of Ukraine's particular position, which isn't true in relation to the other states around NATO membership, is it, it has this unresolved Crimea question and the Sevastopol question. So even before we get to the year of Putin's Munich security speech, so this is 2006, there were actually anti-NATO protests take place in Crimea in response to a US-Ukraine joint military um, exercise, which include preparation for war games. Because if there is going to be a a conflict, Mm -hmm. and if there's going to be NATO involved in the projection of Russian power around the Black Sea, that puts Ukraine pretty central um, yeah. to it. And just to compound things, I think, for 2008, which is when all this is going to come to a head on the NATO side, is is that Ukraine's economy is not getting any better, in sharp contrast to the Russian during the, the 2000s because of the oil and gas price boom. And through 2008, Ukraine will get very, very badly hit by the financial crash. It's also year. getting squeezed by Russia in particular. One of Putin's um, levers at this time is, is gas. And it's that the start of the gas wars, right, in 2005, as I understand it, where effectively they're jacking up the price for the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians end up effectively stealing the gas that's coming to Western Europe. And then Putin is shutting it down. And this is his attempt to just keep them close to, to Russia. I mean, you were saying there about NATO and the question. And I, I, I just think it's really important that we, we think about the dilemma that it poses for for our side rather than just Ukraine and Russia, because it is a dilemma for us. You go all the way back to Margaret Thatcher, and she's she's writing in 1990, we must widen the discussion to include the future of the USSR and whether we pursue spheres of influence or an alliance of democracy or geographical alliances. We cannot completely disregard history, but we must consider some old balance of power. And that effectively is still the discussion that is taking place in the mid-2000s when we're facing this challenge. I think it comes to a head, doesn't it, in 2008 when Yushchenko, uh, still president, visits Brussels uh, and formally asks for what's called a membership action plan or a map at at uh, Bucharest. Um, Putin then warns of Russian missile attacks on Ukraine if NATO missiles are in Ukraine. He warns Bush that the, in quotes, the emergence of a powerful military bloc at our borders will be seen as a direct threat to Russian security. And it's in this summit that France and Germany veto Ukrainian and Georgian membership of NATO. And at the same summit, interestingly enough, Croatia and Albania are granted a membership action plan. So there you can see what how the West is seeing this and we're saying no to these former Soviet Union blocs, most crucially Ukraine. And after that, Putin goes straight into Georgia. And so he effectively annexes uh, South Ossetia, isn't it, I think, at that point, and therefore makes it impossible for Georgia to become a member of NATO. Because once you have a territorial dispute within the country and you have effectively you know, Russian troops controlling uh, one part of your state, then you can't join NATO. And that's exactly the ploy, effectively, that is happening today. Na- uh, Ukraine cannot join NATO because there is an ongoing military war there, and it just means that NATO is drawn immediately into a into a war with Russia, which he doesn't want. I mean, you could argue, though, that there was no need for him to do that in that context because every member state of NATO has a veto and the French and the German veto couldn't actually be be got past at that point. And I think what's revealing about that is the fact that now um, the Western states, 
particularly actually internally within Europe, Mm. but also some of the European states against the United States are pretty divided about the Ukraine question. And I think there kind of is a um, a way of, of thinking about the, the middle of the 2000s in this respect more generally, in which you what you have is actually from the point of the Iraq war, that the French and the Germans moving um, towards being, I w- wouldn't go as far as to saying Russian sympathetic, but Russian aligned on a number of questions. Now, from the German point of view, Nord Stream is, is obviously sort of exhibit um, yeah. A um, of that. But there's a point, I think it's like 2006, five, six, where um, the Germans and the French and I think it's Merkel, Chirac and Putin are having these three-way um, mm-hmm. summits. And that, in a way, is the framing in 2008 when the French and Germans are saying no to Georgia and Ukraine joining. But that, I think, then has, if you like, blowback into the European Union question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because from the point of view of the Poles in particular, if there's nothing being offered to Ukraine on the NATO front, they want something offered on the European Union front. Now, full European Union membership is out of the question, mm-hmm. but this effective associate membership mm-hmm. is what is then put on the um, table. I think there's still considerable reluctance by a number of European Union governments really to sort of, shall we say, go very quickly with those negotiations. But what then I think really changes the game and means that they have to take it much more seriously than perhaps the Germans and the French wanted to is this gas question. Because in January of 2019, there's a complete standoff between Putin um, and the Ukrainian government or the Ukrainian gas company about the issue of transit fees for Ukraine and how much Ukraine is paying for its gas imports from Russia. And it leads to a number of Southern European Union member states, in particular Bulgaria, facing a complete shortage of gas in the middle of winter. Mm-hmm. And the European Union and the Commission in particular, at this point, just becomes deeply, deeply involved in Ukraine energy questions. It starts off being about pipelines. By the time we get to 2015, Ukraine is effectively buying gas from European Union states with reverse flows down the pipelines. Well, this is already in 2015. Wow. And that whole story, in fact, I think you could tell the whole a lot of the story of the negotiations around Ukraine's effective associate membership of the European um, Union around the fact of that the European Commission in particular thinks the EU has no alternative but to get itself involved in trying to help Ukraine modernise these um, pipelines. And meanwhile, is the economic situation in Ukraine after the 2008 crash means that the... 2000, I think it's the 2010 Ukrainian presidential election is then won by Viktor Yanukovych. Now, I don't think he's so straightforwardly Russian aligned as sometimes is um, suggested. But what is true is is that very early on, in fact, within a few weeks, I think, of taking um, power, he does an agreement with Putin, which basically says um, Ukraine will pay less money for its gas imports. Some of its gas debts, which of which it's accumulated a lot mm-hmm. by this point to, to Russia, will be written off. And in exchange, a new Sevastopol lease really is, is, is negotiated. Until 2042. Yeah, 2042 with, I think, an extra possible five-year extension on it. And, and, and so that we can see here, Putin using what is now Ukraine's real economic weakness. I mean, it's pretty bad in the 90s, but this has got a debt aspect yeah. to it. The IMF also have to become involved and that Putin is using that to say, okay, this is how we're going to secure what for him is Russia's security interests in Crimea and Sevastopol in particular. And it just raises the question, how could you have Ukraine in NATO at that point if you have a city within a state that would be in NATO that is your principal uh, your opponent. I mean, it's kind of remarkable. But in a sense, I mean, I've been looking at a map, you know, over the weekend and just kind of surprising myself at how mad the map looks at the moment. Because you, you have something not 
too dissimilar over up, up in the Baltics, where you have um, you know a Russian enclave on one side of the, of the Baltics, and then Russia itself on on the other side, and then obviously Belarus and this this the problem of of that small gap that exists between the two. So you're starting to get a really complicated picture here, uh, and I think you could almost see this point in time as Putin starting to win, because you've got. Obama comes in 2009 and is trying to reset relations with Russia. He wants to focus on China. Um, you've got Yanukovych coming back in as president in Ukraine. Uh, he seems to be dropping the NATO ambitions, although not the EU ambitions. So it is complicated, as you, as you were saying. But Ukraine is left in a really difficult spot. It's no nuclear weapons, ambiguous future with, with the West and in debt, to Russia, which look which looks really strong at this point, and it's at this point that Putin begins pushing for this thing called the Eurasian Union, a, a supranational body, a bit like the EU. Look, this is an attempt to recreate the old kind of Russian Empire. It doesn't look that different from the Soviet Union, or, or, you know, on a map. Um, and the key state, once again, just as it was with the fall of the Soviet Union, is Ukraine. And so I think they are the stakes that we're talking about. And um, Yanukovych comes from the Donbass. You know, so all of this is playing into each other. And I think when you then look forward a couple of years to the next revolution, that's the key moment, is you can start to understand why it's seen as so significant for Russia, because they think at this moment they're not too far away from a kind of success, a geopolitical success. And it's in 2013 that Yanukovych pulls out of the EU association agreement that he's trying to it's uh, they finished the, No, it's, the negotiations are finished. Oh, he's done. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, they've agreed it, but then he pulls out under effectively blackmail from Putin. Uh, I think he threatens to occupy Crimea and, a, and much of southern Ukraine. And he, he gives Ukraine a big discount on gas, doesn't he, worth a $15 billion well, loan. I think that this things. is where something we need to bring out here, though, because it isn't just the question of how much security support is possibly on offer from the European Union mm -hmm. in doing this associate agree yeah. association agreement without NATO. It's also a question of how much financial support that, either the European Union or the International Monetary Fund, which has been involved at this point with Ukraine since I think 2000, either 2008 or um, nine, And Ukraine has experiences a really large financial crisis in 2013. And interestingly, it's kind of sparked by the fact that Ben Bernanke, who's still the American chair of the Federal Reserve Board, so the American Central Bank at that time, gives this testimony to Congress, which makes it seem that the Federal Reserve is going to move away from quantitative easing and freaks out the bond markets and the collateral damage of that right. spreads into any country that's got lots of dollar debt and in right. a weak financial position. And right near the top of the list of those countries in that position is Ukraine. So Ukraine experiences a financial um, crisis. It's still got its ongoing problems of gas debts with um, Russia and the support that's on offer from the European Union financially or from the European Central Bank. There's no dollar swap line to the American Federal mm. Reserve Board. What's on offer from the IMF is just nothing compared to what Putin is willing to offer mm -hmm. to support Ukraine financially in exchange for Yanukovych dropping the um, agreement. And I think as well, it's important to see that Putin doesn't necessarily, I think, experience those years as just a period of strength. And one of the reasons why is because the American shale gas boom has really been a big, big blow for him because now he's looking at competition mm -hmm. from American shale gas companies selling into the European market. And a number of those countries, not least the Baltics, Poland, are going to be very keen on buying American liquid natural gas. But for a while, sort of 2012, 2013, certainly, it looks like there may well well be good shale prospects in Ukraine itself. And, and Yanukovych, and this is why I say he's not completely aligned with Putin, mm. he's very interested in having, in fact, he negotiates for, I think, Shell and one of the other um, Western energy companies um, to come in. So there's a moment, I think, when Putin thinks that economically that there's a possibility that Ukraine could create some energy independence for itself, yeah. certainly in the gas realm uh, Anyway, the Americans are encouraging them 
to do that. He's now got competition, as I say, selling into the Polish market in, in particular. So I think it's a, it's a strange mixture of like strength and weakness that yeah. Putin looks upon this well, situation future, at that current time. Current strength and future weakness. And that yeah. any situation in which he thinks that Ukraine will be more economically or economically less dependent upon Russia via the transit fees than um, than it um, presently um, is, is one in which Russian grasp of Sevastopol might be like slipping mm-hmm. away again. And I think then he experiences or he thinks about what happens in terms of the events when the protesters are on the street in Ukraine um, after Yanukovych has abandoned the EU agreement. And then Yanukovych loses power in February of 2014 and is replaced by a pretty pro-Western, pro-EU government. Poroshenko, right? Yeah. Is it, no, he, he doesn't come in quite soon straight away, does he? He comes in a few no. months later. Is that The point is that I think that Putin thinks, oh, this Crimea Sevastopol's issue is going to be back on the table mm-hmm. again. And then he's like, well, we're not having that this time. And this time he goes straight then to annexation of Crimea. And in that sense, I think what what's important to see is the way in which the European Union has treated the association agreement just as a question of, if you like, extending the European Union's economic sphere mm-hmm. of influence further eastwards and to a considerable extent trying to help Ukraine modernize these pipelines and get out of all the troubles that that mm-hmm. um, causes them. But there's no capacity for the European Union to respond yeah. in a military sense when Putin's response then is, okay, I'm annexing Crimea. Yeah, because Putin feels like uh, effectively he's losing control. I mean, he's he's built it up slowly over 10 years. He's He seems to be on the brink of winning that tussle for control. And then you have a, a revolution and... Um, you know, we don't know how real he thinks about this, but, you know, he says that it's a it's a Western inspired revolution. Um, you know, there are U.S. Assistant Secretary Victoria Newland is there. Kathy Ashton is there going to they go to the Maidan and give us speeches in in support of the of the protesters. But I mean, that's not evidence of a Western inspired coup. But what what happens is is it, it's obviously not a constitutionally clean what happens. I think this is a key. There's, there's chaos that's going on. It doesn't seem like Putin is in, um, knows that the Yanukovych is going to flee uh, from Kiev. He doesn't know that he's going to flee into into Russia. I think he's uh, disappointed that he has abandoned power. But it's in that period when there is a kind of loss of authority in Kiev in between that revolution and the emergence of Poroshenko that he then makes his move on Crimea. So it's at a point of Ukraine's weakness that then he forces the matter. And it's at the same time that the uh, Donbass, uh, the, the sort of Russian proxies there begin to rise. We're, we're going to finish the episode at, at this point because we think that ultimately this is the start of the war. This is the start of the hot war that starts in 2014 and continues and, and obviously ratchets up in in 2022. But that's how we think we should understand this uh, situation. Uh, yeah, and just as a final like thought, because it allows us to get to where we're going in terms of where we are today, uh, I think that the, the threads that run through this is that the NATO and the European Union question are never aligned in ways that are going to help Absolutely. Ukraine. And there's a, a best... A great deal of division in the member states of the European Union and then within NATO about what to do about the Ukraine question. And I think you could argue that even those who are in favour of both Ukraine being in NATO and Ukraine being in the European Union don't actually have any realistic idea about how these things are going to be brought about. So you you then have a situation where the, the European Union is simply trying to deal with what is inherently geopolitical question that's got all kinds of complications around it that are baked in from the start, from where we started talking about this episode Mm in the um, 1990s. And it just carries on as if there is no geopolitical question and just the economic aspects of it will 
mean that it's all going to work out in the wash. And it's just a question so of democracy and the end of history. It's all fine. We don't have to worry about these old questions that Margaret Thatcher was worrying about in 1990, yeah. the questions of spheres of influence. And the, but also just the Crimea question. I mean, if you go back to that remark from the Ukrainian like premier after they've given up the nuclear weapons, well, who's going to lift a finger when anybody when the Russians walk into Ukraine? <laughs> yeah. There were some not particularly effective sanctions put in place, but nobody militarily um, um, could lift a finger. And I, I think that what we can see is, is there was just no actual serious grappling with what it meant for Europe hmm. and then for NATO for there to be an independent Ukrainian nation state from Russia. And there was, it, it, despite all the unhappiness hmm. of Bush and Thatcher and Cole and Mitron, there wasn't anything that they could do um, about it. But then I think it's fair to say that their successors didn't get to grips with what the consequences and the implications of that would be. Absolutely. And in the next episode next week, we're going to focus on a lot of those implications. We're going to look at how the war has progressed from 2014 to today and where we are because it's chaotic on, on the battlefield and where we're not likely to go. We're not going to try and forecast where the war is going to go, but we're going to try and interrogate all of these same questions that we've been looking at today bring them up to date uh, I really hope you enjoyed that episode I, I loved recording it and, and researching it actually it's been fascinating please give us a follow and give us a rating it really helps thanks a lot for listening Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.